On August 17, 2023, KEI held a program on the U.S.-South Korea-North Korea Strategic Triangle in the Indo-Pacific era. The program featured Scott Snyder's work to help better understand the evolution and perceptions of the three main actors in the U.S.-South Korea-North Korea Triangle, including their respective approaches to one another and interactions with China, the main impacts of U.S.-China rivalry on their respective postures and priorities, and the future trajectory of both U.S.-South Korea-North Korea triangular relations and great power relations in the region. Very happy to have you all in attendance, whichever platform you're joining us from. And it features a discussion uh, of a paper under a similar name uh, by Scott Snyder, Senior Fellow for Korea Studies and Director of the Program on U.S.-Korea Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. And if you're in the Korea space, uh, Scott is a very familiar face, and for very good reason. He is a well-known expert. Uh, and writes and speaks extensively on U.S.-Korea relations as well as uh, regional affairs in the Asia-Pacific, or as we now refer to it, the Indo-Pacific. I will not go through his entire bio. We have that linked on our website uh, or his prolific bibliography, but I will just mention a few more recent titles, including a co-edited volume titled North Korea's Foreign Policy, The Kim Jong-un Regime in a Hostile World. It was published in January this year. It's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Also, Scott wrote South Korea at the Crossroads, Autonomy and Alliance in an Era of Rival Powers, published in January of 2018. It's a book I've cited extensively in my own, my own writing. And also that same year, he co-authored a book titled Domestic Constraints on South Korean Foreign Policy. But before turning to Scott, I just want to briefly contextualize today's program in relation to the larger project uh, of which it is a part Scott's paper will be featured in volume two of KEI's new flagship journal, Korea Policy, which is running under the title of Defining the Indo-Pacific, a Region of Diverse Visions. And it consists of two sections. The first section presents the US, Japan, South Korea, ASEAN, and Chinese perspectives on the Indo-Pacific concept and some of their respective strategies or, or outlooks. And the second section features more Korea-focused analysis, including Scott's paper, a paper by Rory Medcalf of Australia National University on South Korea-Australia relations, and a paper by myself on debates surrounding the so-called strategic flexibility of U.S. forces stationed on the Korean Peninsula, in particular in relation to a, a contingency over uh, Taiwan. So today I've asked Scott if you would present for about 15 to 20 minutes on some of the key findings and takeaways from his paper. Then I have some questions that I've prepared that I, that I will lob his way, and then we'll open things up to you, our audience, both here uh, in-house at KEI, but also online for, uh, for some, Q, some Q&A. So without further ado, Scott, thank you for joining us. Uh, well, thank you, Clint, for the invitation. It's great to be here at uh, KEI. Uh, and I also very much appreciate uh, Gil Rosman's editorship uh, of this process and project and uh, his conceptualization of it. Um, as I look at the title of my paper on the wall there, uh, it occurs to me that um, increasingly the Indo-Pacific is a nice uh, way of not naming the elephant in the room, and that is China. Uh, because a lot of what my paper really uh, focuses on uh, is how this uh, U.S., South Korean, North Korea triangle has interacted with and grappled with uh, China's uh, influence uh, on the peninsula. And um, I'm going to um, do a little bit of a spoiler alert, I think, and give you my takeaways first. Uh, for all the, those of you who were going to read the paper, you can just close your ears, I guess. Um, uh, the, the first takeaway for me is that uh, the focus on China, the U.S. rivalry, and its dynamic on uh, the U.S., South Korea, and North Korea dynamic, um, China may overshadow and distract from our traditional focus on North Korea. Uh, and it may possibly make North Korea subordinate to China as a main focus of policymakers. And so that's something that I think particularly comes into relief uh, in my paper as I review 
of the history uh, of uh, U.S., South Korea, and North Korea interactions uh, over the course of the past 20 years. Um, another takeaway is um, that the China-North Korea dynamic, which is very much related to this triangle and how it works, uh, it remains complicated. Uh, the China North, the, the strengthening of China North Korea relations is a byproduct of the deepening Sino US rivalry uh, that also limits US ability to influence North Korea. But although North Korea is more dependent on China, it does not always mean that China can control North Korea. And so that is, has been a focus, I think, for a very long time among China and North Korea watchers. And I think that it remains uh, a subject of continuing debate. We're getting new data points in this current uh, environment, uh, but I would say that uh, the um, range of views remains pretty diverse in terms of whether or not uh, China really is able to control North Korea or whether uh, North Korea really seeks autonomy from China more than anything else. And I'll come back, back to that a little bit later. Um, a third takeaway, as I look at this particular strategic triangle, the U.S., ROK, and North Korea, uh, is that um, historically one of the main factors that has influenced the dynamic and development of this particular triangle actually has been uh, the nature and focus of the leadership in South Korea. In other words, whether or not South Korea is led by a conservative administration or a progressive administration. And so that's important to keep in mind because North Korea has been more hostile uh, toward conservative South Korean leadership and more cooperative uh, with progressive uh, South Korean leadership. And that actually, I think, has been a primary dynamic with China uh, being a secondary dynamic uh, until recently. Uh, and then my last takeaway is that uh, the U.S.-China rivalry is impinging on this particular U.S.-South Korea-North Korea triangular relationship uh, because um, the rivalry uh, has energized uh, competing strategic configurations uh, between the US, Japan, and South Korea on the one hand, as we will see tomorrow, uh, and between China, uh, North Korea, and Russia on the other. And it's actually quite interesting to see how North Korea has uh, been activating uh, the um, triangular relationship uh, engaging with China and Russia recently. So how do I approach this topic of looking at the U.S., South Korea, and North Korea strategic triangle? Well, what I did was to go back and look at it, uh, its development in phases. Uh, and I saw really three main phases in terms of the development of China's influence uh, in relationship to the U.S., South Korea, and North Korea triangle uh, over the course of the past 30 years. Uh, the first phase was back in the 1990s. Uh, when the U.S. was engaging directly uh, with North Korea on the Geneva Agreed Framework and on the establishment of the Korean Peninsula Energy Development Organization. And actually, at that time, I think what was really notable is that uh, China really had a marginal role to play in um, denuclearization efforts uh, and uh, in the institutional configurations around the push for denuclearization uh, at that time. Um, South Koreans' role was uh, primary. Uh, and uh, for instance, Korean Peninsula Energy Development Organization, the configuration of that organization, which was created in, in order to uh, build light water nuclear reactors in North Korea, uh, as part of the Geneva Agreed Framework, the U.S.-North Korea, bi Korea bilateral effort to address that phase of the North Korean nuclear crisis, uh, China was not involved. Instead, interestingly enough, the European Union was on the board of Quito. Uh, China was nowhere to be seen. So at that time, I think what was really remarkable was the lack of China's involvement. And, and we saw China begin to be involved a little bit in the late 1990s. We had the, uh, there was a, a grouping called the four-party talks in the context of um, North Korea's famine and efforts to recover from the famine that was established. Uh, that was really the first multilateral engagement that China had uh, with the U.S. Um, uh, and the two Koreas. Uh, but it also uh, was pretty stillborn. Uh, and then, really, we have to wait until the second phase uh, that I analyzed uh, of my paper to see China taking a more central role. 
And of course, that occurred in uh, the 2000s. Uh, and actually, uh, the big facilitator of China playing a more central role as related to this particular strategic triangle uh, was the United States and the Bush administration, because the Bush administration essentially looked to China to host uh, the six-party talks, uh, which was the main diplomatic vehicle by which to address uh, um, the uh, North Korean nuclear issue, issue during that phase after the breakdown of uh, the agreed framework and uh, the failure of the Korean Peninsula Energy Development Organization that occurred in the early 2000s. So China was kind of brought in, uh, and China also had a set of interests uh, as related to being involved. Uh, but they weren't exactly the same as US interests, uh, even though China was the host. Uh, China's main objectives uh, as host of the six-party talks uh, of course, denuclearization was the objective of the talks, but I think that, and, and China benefited from being the convener. But I think that what China really was looking to get out of uh, those talks uh, at that time was an assurance that things were going to remain stable. Six party talks was basically for China a crisis management mechanism to prevent conflict between the US and North Korea uh, from escalating. Uh, and it was also a way in which China tried to uh, uh, use its role in part as a mediator between the U.S. and North Korea, but also uh, as a way of trying to build leverage and influence with North Korea in order to be able to shape some of the outcome uh, of the talks. And so, you know, in the context of six-party talks, this really ended up being an umbrella organization through which and under which various trilateral configurations interacted with each other. And one of them was the U.S., South Korea, North Korea uh, triangle. Uh, during this particular period, uh, during the Bush administration and the No Mukyan administration, um, you know, the dynamic uh, as related to North Korea was also interesting because South Korea could use the six-party talks uh, as a way to try to show some autonomy and also to um, uh, pursue um, a level of cooperation, perhaps, with other parties, uh, you know, channels of dialogue with China and North Korea at a time when I think the Bush administration's main conceptual framework as related to the use of the six-party talks was to build the coalition of five against one to pressure uh, North Korea into denuclearization. Um, and uh, the No Mukyan administration was not always on the same page uh, with the Bush administration during this time. Uh, it showed up to less within the six-party talks than, I think, uh, in the context of an ongoing debate over which is more effective in dealing with North Korea's sanctions or economic engagement. And so, you know, that was an active part of the U.S.-South Korean-North Korea uh, dynamic uh, but then also, I think that the Chinese developed expectations about the No Mukyan administration and the prospect of strategic distancing uh, between uh, the U.S. and South Korea uh, during that time. And I think that they really were hoping to see the No Mukyan administration not only take a little bit more uh, agency in the context of six-party talks, but also possibly to lay the groundwork for Kind of peeling off uh, a little bit. Uh, for China, I think that the main um, you know, challenge was um, to try to find a way to gain enough influence on North Korea to actually generate a positive outcome from the six-party talks. But the reality was that even though we had the six-party umbrella, the way that that dynamic worked uh, in the context of um, uh, the discussions at that time was uh, that both the U.S. and North Korea remained the principals, and actually it was the six-party talks blessing a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and North Korea that finally led to uh, progress in the six-party talks. So China was there to convene and to affirm, but not necessarily to exert uh, decisive uh, influence. Um, and then um, the third phase um, that I think is really the most interesting and relevant to uh, the conversation today, uh, and actually very telling uh, in terms of the way that things played out, is really 
from 2017 onward. And, and let me just step back and mention one other thing in the second phase. The Obama administration, you know, actively sought to, after the Bush administration, actively sought to cooperate with China uh, on uh, North Korea policy, and in particular, the 2013 Sunnylands summit. There was an agreement uh, to do that, but that really uh, didn't uh, go uh, too far. So the third phase is, you know, I think really uh, interesting because we really see, um, I think, China's core motivations uh, being flushed out uh, in the context of um, first uh, kind of atmosphere of confrontation between the U.S. and North Korea, uh, and then uh, this really remarkable turn towards symmetry, bilateral symmetry that occurred. Uh, in um, 2017 and 2018. And so I think what was really interesting about that time is that uh, following Sunnylands, I wouldn't say that the relationship between the US and China was really that close, but China was actually most cooperative on the uh, passage of UN sanctions uh, in response to North Korean uh, continued testing in the 2016-2017 um, uh, time period and actually even was beginning to uh, impose some of its own unilateral sanctions on North Korea as a means by which to try to gain leverage on Kim Jong-un uh, in 2017. Um, and yet all of that uh, potential for putting pressure on North Korea uh, that came from the UN sanctions resolution as tensions really uh, ratcheted up in 2017, uh, it kind of dissipated, I would argue, as an unintended consequence of Trump's turn towards symmetry. Uh, and I think this is really interesting uh, because um, the, the advent of China-North Korea symmetry, it really reverted to a pattern that we'd seen previously uh, at the beginning of Kim Jong-il. And that is basically anytime the North Korean leader engages uh, with the outside, including especially with South Korea, they always go to China first. Uh, and that is exactly what happened as uh, North Korea ramped up uh, and engaged in symmetry uh, with South Korea and the United States. Uh, it enabled, uh, you know, really seemingly from the outside perspective and not knowing the internal dynamics of the China-North Korea relationship, it seems to just materialize from nowhere. But of course, they both had motives for wanting to get together in the context of engagement with South Korea and the United States respectively. And I think for Kim Jong-un, the main motive uh, prior to engaging with uh, um, South Korea and the US was really to try to demonstrate that North Korea had strategic depth uh, that could support this process. Uh, for China, I think that it was about kind of refocusing on North Korea uh, as a buffer and trying to enhance China's strategic awareness of what was going on in order to make sure that there were no strategic surprises on the peninsula. Uh, and so what we saw was uh, Xi and Kim Jong-un, after having not uh, met uh, for the first uh, four years of um, Xi Jinping's presidency, uh, meeting for the first time just days before the inter-Korean summit, after the inter-Korean summit, and before the uh, Singapore summit. And, you know, basically they had five summits in a year. So, you know, that really reactivated China's uh, engagement with North Korea and focus as a strategic buffer. Now, the reason why I think that that timing is interesting is it is actually before we saw the full-fledged uh, rise of Sino-U.S. rivalry. Uh, that, I think, was beginning uh, in 2017, 2018, but it didn't really um, uh, fully flower until after China had already made this strategic decision to engage uh, with North Korea. And so I think that um, the decision to engage uh, and kind of roll back the clock to restore uh, North Korea, uh, the, the Beijing-Pyongyang relationship as a strategic relationship occurred actually prior to the, um, um, uh, the advent of really an increased Sino-US rivalry, but the magnification of that rivalry has clearly generated a lot of strategic space uh, for North Korea to maneuver uh, in the context of really things like the breakdown of the UN Security Council, 
uh, ability to pass sanctions uh, uh, punishing North Korea for long-range missile tests and things like that. Um, but there's also another effect uh, that occurred there, and that is that, China, that North Korea, um, even despite its desire to achieve strategic autonomy, uh, in my view, that's what North Korea's main goal was in terms of managing the respective engagements of China and the United States, was to generate some strategic autonomy in their own triangle with the U.S. and China, respectively. Um, instead of achieving that, what they ended up doing was to achieve greater dependency uh, on China. Uh, and so, you know, we're now in this situation in the context of the Indo-Pacific where, um, there, um, you know, North Korea is both more dependent on China, but also has greater uh, room for maneuver uh, than it had had previously. And then finally, I think that the focus on the Indo-Pacific uh, as a framing mechanism that has really kicked in in the Biden administration, initially with Moon, but really fully flowering under Yoon, uh, has been to broaden the aperture of the U.S.-South Korea alliance uh, in ways that raise some interesting questions. Historically, the alliance has been so focused on uh, security and deterrence of North Korea. Uh, but in the context of the Indo-Pacific, it raises some interesting questions uh, about um, the relative focus of China uh, as a um, focal point for coordination as uh, the, the major uh, generator of threat perceptions, concerns uh, in the U.S. and South Korea, respectively. I think that it is clearly broadening the aperture of the alliance to include China has also been accompanied by a broadening of the mechanisms by which the U.S. and South Korea are engaging in cooperation. But I think that it also comes with a little bit of a risk. And I think the risk is kind of two-sided. One is the risk that North Korea will somehow get lost, uh, even despite North Korea's periodic uh, return to headlines. It's not the way it was. Uh, the risk that North Korea can kind of get lost in our uh, in the focus on China, um, uh, and also how do we balance uh, that set of issues uh, in the context of the alliance conversation? Um, and I think so far what we've seen is a broadening of aperture without necessarily losing the focus on North Korea. Uh, the nuclear consultative group might be one evidence that you could give, you know, for that. Uh, but I do think that as this process unfolds, uh, and now with the advent of the emphasis of these two opposing strategic triangles, Japan are okay, U.S. Uh, and North Korea, China, um, uh, Russia, uh, it really subsumes any potential aspects of what might happen uh, in terms of U.S., South Korea, and North Korea. Um, there's a lot more in the paper that I would have loved to talk about, but I was under strict instructions to try to limit my remarks to about 20 to 25 minutes. And I hope that I have uh, fulfilled that objective. And I hope that I've also been uh, clear in at least hitting the highlights uh, of uh, my review of how this triangle has developed in the context of both China's rising influence and the uh, U.S. efforts to reframe its strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Thank you, Scott. Um, you've done a fantastic job, only sticking to time, but summing up so many of the key points. And I, I shared with you some questions that I, I want to turn to now, but I have a handful of others I want to get to, which I'm sure I will be able to, because we want to gather audience's thoughts as well. Um, just starting with, with looking back a little bit, you, you mentioned in the second phase, that you explained in the paper. And it's sort of this 15-ish year period during the 2000s, 2010s, till 2017, when the third phase begins, that China's role evolved from being more of a marginal actor to becoming more active, yet still somewhat, somewhat distant influence on the peninsula. Do you see, did you see a in your in your research and what's your assessment on if there was sort of a dividing line? I would actually argue that there was a tendency to overestimate China's uh, role rather than underestimate China's role. And part of this came with a set of expectations for what China might do uh, as a convener of the six-party talks. The idea of the five-against-one framework that I think was uh, implicit in um, 
the assumptions underlying the creation of that approach. Um, and, you know, China during that same period in the mid-2000s, um, I think that they were struggling uh, to try to figure out how to influence North Korea uh, during that period, uh, in part in order to leverage it for purposes of working on the um, uh, six-party talks, but also in order to enhance their own level of confidence that, uh, that North Korea would be more integrated, uh, at least with China, uh, and possibly even more integrated into the region. And so the reason why I focus on that is because you know, in that late 2000s phase, uh, we saw a lot of efforts by China to uh, promote engagement uh, with North Korea bilaterally. Mm -hmm. uh, Bao went to North Korea, I believe, during that time. Um, uh, and there was a whole host of um, uh, cabinet ministers that were engaged during that period, uh, really in an effort to uh, generate uh, institutional and exchange linkages uh, between um, uh, Chinese um, uh, organizations and North Korean. I think there was real effort by the Chinese to, to bring North Koreans out and engage with them. Uh, and, and the communiques during that period, you know, the main emphasis that was always on the Chinese side was uh, the first point was always we need to enhance strategic communication, mm. which basically meant strategic communication was lacking, meaning we are feeling like we can be blindsided by you. Uh, North Koreans, you know, let us know what was going, what was going on, and then also, you know, it's it's one of the problems I think uh, with uh, really trying to describe this period. Uh, you mentioned two thousand nine, but I would actually argue that another critical turning point in the China North Korea relationship, following this effort to try to enhance institutional ties with North Korea, was actually twenty thirteen, uh, after Kim Jong Un had taken power, but of course. 2013 was the downfall of Chan Song-tak, who I think was the major figure that China had really invested in, uh, in terms of a lot of the uh, interactions and relationships that they had tried to build. build. Uh, and also at that time, I did um, a fair amount of research looking at what the Chinese were doing in terms of direct person-to-person -person relationships uh, engaging with North Korea. Uh, and back before Kim Jong-il passed away in 29, 2010, 2011, there was a very heavy emphasis on um, engagement with North Korean senior leadership at the Chinese embassy in Pyongyang. Mm -hmm. uh, and that all kind of dissipated uh, with even Kim Jong-un showed up uh, at the Chinese embassy uh, in Pyongyang uh, before he uh, actually became um, uh, leader. Uh, but that all dissipated. And I think, uh, you know, really, um, uh, we saw a weakening uh, institutionally of China, uh, North Korea uh, ties, uh, clearly at the beginning of the Kim Jong-un period. And it went, it was not only at the head level, I think that it also was at the lower levels as well. You want me to talk more? <laughs> well, yes, I do. Um, uh, you, you, you mentioned this a bit in your uh, remarks, and, and maybe I didn't pick up on it when I read the paper, although it, it probably is there. Um, but was China's approach to North Korea more a function of its relations with the U.S. or of its own increasing assertiveness? And maybe it's difficult to disentangle those two things, but more a function of its the evolution of its relationship with Washington are sort of more self-generated. Um, the other piece now that comes to mind is, is North Korea's own agency in driving this, this shift as well, which, which you sort of alluded to, but maybe if we could burrow into that, that question. Okay. Uh, well, I've been watching um, the China-Korea relationship for a very long time through uh, regular uh, writing about events in the relationship for Pacific Forum. Uh, that's been my main focus uh, for them. Uh, and so, um, actually, I would say that Chinese policy toward uh, North Korea has, generally speaking, been pretty stable in terms of their main objectives. Um, as focused on North Korea, I think that the three no's have been operative for a long time and remain operative. That is, uh, 
uh, no war, no collapse, no nukes. And at this point, I would say it was in that order, whereas previously it might have been. But the other thing that I think is notable is that I think that China has always, um, when they've been making policy toward North and South Korea, uh, they've seen it through the lens of the relationship with the United States. And so I actually think this is one of the big um, kind of uh, blind spots in terms of Chinese policy uh, toward the peninsula is it's always been instrumental. It's always been in the context of the U.S.-China relationship. And although the buffer strategy, I think, has worked well for China for a very long time, you know, in the traditional context of any kind of you know, conflict, um, it hasn't worked well for China as it has thought about and approached South Korea. Uh, and in some ways, I think that the real, one of the real puzzlers for me in watching the China-South uh, Korea relationship for a long time is why the Chinese government has been so ineffective in trying to craft a policy that would actually be appealing uh, to South Korea. Uh, and the more you look at it, the more it's really puzzling. In some ways, it feels like the Chinese kind of have had a tenure as related to South Korea. Um, the, the, the best evidence of that was, I think, during the uh, Park Geun-hye period when Xi Jinping visited uh, Seoul and gave an address at SNU, uh, Seoul National University, that was widely uh, criticized and panned. Uh, and now, of course, we're in an even more adverse environment because of the shift in South Korean public opinion toward China uh, to an extraordinarily more negative um, kind of orientation that then was the case even back in 2015 uh, and through 2018, 2019. Um, I, I'm going to pose one more question that I've prepared, but just uh, for our audience, uh, particularly those online, if you do have um, any questions, you can put them in the YouTube uh, chat box and, and we can we can turn to them uh, when we turn to Q&A. And for those in the room, just raise your hand and, and we can bring a mic to you for you to pose a question. Um, a third question, um, and I think you were alluding to aspects of it a second ago, Scott, was given at the given the prominent place that Japan has in in China, South Korea relations and diplomacy. And I'm thinking about Xi Jinping's visit in 2014 to Seoul, the three no's announcement, um, still a priority for Beijing to this day that she mentioned. How has driving a wedge, China's driving a wedge between US allies, particularly Tokyo and Seoul, impacted China, U.S., South Korea relations, that triangle. China, U.S., South Korea. Yes. Okay. Well, so I think what has been interesting about the Chinese approach is uh, to um, relations with South Korea and Japan, uh, respectively, uh, kind of broadly speaking, uh, is that uh, China as a fellow uh, aggrieved party during post-World War II with Japan had something that it could uh, connect with South Korea, uh, at least emotionally on to some degree, the sense of grievance as related to the uh, history of Japanese aggression. And I think that we saw uh, China really play that card, uh, particularly actively, actually right around that same period um, under Park Geun-hye administration at a time when Park Geun-hye was kind of very interested in um, establishing a um, productive relationship uh, with China. Uh, and actually on the Japan side, I think there was some concern about how actively Park Geun-hye was interested in doing that. And what we saw on the Chinese side was precisely uh, the impulse to exploit historical grievance. And uh, the one that uh, really stands out in my mind from that period was that uh, Park Geun-hye, I think, went to Beijing and she asked the Chinese to um, uh, make a commemorative plaque uh, to uh, on the site of the uh, assassination of Anjun Gun. by Anjun Gun. I right? remember that, yeah. And instead of a plaque, the Chinese 
gave the South Koreans a whole museum up That's there. Right. That's right. Right? Gave a lot more. Uh, and I also remember, uh, distinctly remember, uh, you know, Chinese scholars trying to play that Japan grievance card uh, at meetings during that time and it kind of feeling like the Chinese were giving the bear hug to the South Koreans and the South Koreans are kind of cringing, don't hug me too close. Um, and so, you know, so in a way, I think that one of the problems and challenges that, uh, and, and also, let me add this, because this is very contemporary. If you go back and look at the Chinese media response to uh, Yun's outreach back in March of this year, uh, it is vitriolic. Uh, really odd to see such a vitriolic response uh, around a third party development. Uh, but it's clear that the Chinese uh, were criticizing Yoon. Uh, the term that they used uh, in the media during that time was, quote unquote, strategic sleepwalking. Just, just for clarification, Yoon's outreach to, to Japan. To Japan, yeah. Uh, in okay. March of this yeah. year. Yeah. So there were some very uh, strident uh, Chinese uh, op eds. Uh, in the Global Times that came out in response to Yoon's outreach to Japan, his decision to go to Japan. Um, uh, and they referred to it as strategic sleepwalking. And basically, they're completely befuddled by why and how President Yoon is approaching um, his relationships with Japan and the U.S. in the way that they are. And I think that it's even playing out in the pre-response uh, in the Chinese media over the course of the past few days. To the trilateral, to yeah. the trilateral. So um, in that respect, I think that we can definitely see that um, the trilateral does hit a Chinese nerve, for sure. Um, and uh, it feeds into this, uh, at least for my purposes, dynamic uh, between uh, opposing strategic trilaterals that, at least for the time being, is subsuming my main focus, the U.S., South Korea, North Korea triangle, at least for the purposes of this paper. Okay, let's let's open things up uh, to the audience. Um, as I said, if you're if you're in here, uh, just raise your hand, and we can bring a mic to you. Mark, I saw I saw your hand raised first, and since you're my most immediate boss, I'm going to defer to you. And, and always wise, Clint. Um, Scott, you mentioned that North Korea has been more or less hostile towards South Korean conservative administrations and progressive ones. So I'm just wondering how that works in practice. Has North Korea ever shown an interest or ability to manipulate South Korean politics or affect election outcomes or try to work on public opinion? Um, I don't see much success in terms of North Korean ability to reach into South Korea to affect election outcomes. In fact, I think the way that that has generally tended to work historically, there was always something in the South Korean uh, election cycle that they referred to as the, the Bukpung or the North Wind. Uh, and that was the perception that North Korea might be trying to you know, do that kind of outreach. Uh, but it usually ended up seeming like something that conservatives were trying to play up uh, in order to generate uh, support on national security grounds rather than anything that looks like a, an effective North Korean uh, political strategy to influence elections themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that North Korea doesn't have influence operations uh, inside uh, South Korea. Uh, and in that context, I think that it is true that um, any of those operations are more likely to affect uh, individuals that are on the far left and therefore a little bit closer to the progressive side than the conservative side in South Korean politics. Um, that's been there uh, in one form or another. Again, I wouldn't say that it has been uh, decisive to any kind of um, election outcome. It's really more of a, I think that both the Pukpung and uh, North Korean efforts to influence uh, actors, domestic actors within South Korea, have been kind of more in the sub theme or almost the dog whistle category, but not necessarily. It's hard for me to say it's an effective dog whistle. Uh, it's just present. Um, it's like uh, the, the buzz. 
that you can hear, but not necessarily anything that's interfering with the conversation. The bukpung, it makes me think in an American historical context, the, the post-bellum, post-Civil War, waving the bloody shirt strategy, um, maybe more effective in an American context. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, other questions? Yes, right here. Just wait a moment. A, a mic will be brought your way. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott, for a um, very elaborate and remarkable explanation of the triangular relations. Uh, my question is related to uh, Taiwan invasion scenarios. When I talk with South Korean friends or colleagues, I often get a reply that South Korea has to prepare for North Korean attack on South Korea, uh, rather than helping uh, Taiwan or the U.S. forces uh, over the straits. Um, do you think uh, North Korean's leaders or Kim Jong-un uh, Jong is planning to uh, take advantage of the China's possible invasion of Taiwan? Or in other words, uh, does Xi Jinping expect uh, North Korea will attack South Korea or any actions to divert the U.S. attentions and forces? Thank you. Yeah, well, of course, that's way beyond the scope of my paper. Um, but it is an active topic of discussion, I think, uh, around town. Uh, and of course, you know, one aspect of that discussion is um, the fact that um, focusing on Taiwan-related contingencies, uh, that dialogue is much more advanced in the context of the U.S.-Japan relationship than it is in the context of the U.S.-South Korea relationship. And you've put your finger on one of the reasons why after all, President Yoon, back in uh, the fall of last year, I believe, you know, told CNN in response to a question about cross-straits relations and the possibility of tension or conflict that uh, his focus was going to be on North Korea. So in that respect, you could say that it's about uh, holding down the fort on the peninsula while the, uh, any kind of cross-strait conflict might proceed. Uh, and that may be relevant. It certainly is understandable from a South Korean security point of view. But I think that the other aspect of your uh, you know, uh, question is really related to um, what is the scenario that we actually think we need to prepare for, right? And so that's an interesting question because, um, I mean, first of all, we don't know if there's gonna be a conflict. It's the job of defense planners to prepare for conflict. And that means they need to consider all of the scenarios. Well, one of the scenarios might be uh, the one that you pointed to, which is basically what I would call the North Korean opportunism scenario, that tensions develop in the cross-straits relationship. North Korea sees an opportunity to advance its aims on the peninsula, and it engages in activities designed to achieve some kind of gain. There's another scenario that I think gets less attention, and it's related to the debate that I flagged uh, in my talk. Uh, and that is, um, I guess, what you might call the, uh, the China-directed North Korean conflict scenario. In other words, could we imagine that uh, China would somehow induce North Korea to take a first move uh, that would distract uh, or even um, refocus uh, U.S. attention on the peninsula as part of a strategy for engaging in conflict uh, in the Straits. And so, I mean, my view is that uh, I, I can't say which one of those scenarios is going to be more likely, um, in part because I also am remaining a little bit ambivalent about uh, the debate over is uh, um, North Korea a client of China or does it have some kind of autonomy? Um, my own view is that it probably waxes and wanes uh, and it's dynamic and it may not be an, a question that we will ever be able to answer with sufficient clarity to be useful. And so I think that what that means is that from a conflict planning point of view, you have to probably consider both scenarios. But I also just want to emphasize that um, what I think is uh, going to be the, one of the main messages over the course of the next day or two um, a unified message from U.S., Japan, and South Korea is actually focused primarily on prevention of that scenario from playing out. And part of that is um, 
a whole of alliances kind of trilateral approach to stating the undesirability of uh, any Taiwan conflict being decided through military force and the critical importance and to the national interests of all countries that any efforts to deal with tensions across the strait be peaceful. Beyond the scope of your paper, but masterfully uh, answered uh, and in concise fashion, I, I will say, um, m m as I mentioned, the paper I'm writing will focus, at least in an alliance context, on on some of the debates and discourse around this this issue. Um, go, go ahead and take a. Well, I, I mean, I would I would sort of echo what <laughs> what you said. Um, there's been, I mean, there has been notably increased uh, discursive signaling from the South Korean side in terms of the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. And in fact, this began under the previous progressive administration of Moon Jae-in. President Yoon has been more outspoken in this regard, um, not only tying peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait to the region, the Indo-Pacific region, but also to the international community. And, and they've done this in, in a trilateral context in the Phnom Penh statement. And the last thing I would add is in South Korea's own Indo-Pacific strategy, they linked peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait to security on the Korean Peninsula. Oftentimes, historically, Korean leaders have talked about the peace and stability of the peninsula being essential to the region's peace and stability. But the inversion of that linkage was very notable. I, I, I don't know in my research of, of that ever happening. Um, nevertheless, I think the focus is overwhelmingly preventing this from happening. Um, I will, just to plug another organization's work, Marcus Garlowskis at the Atlantic Council, they just produced, published a report yesterday that talks about some of these scenarios and the risks of whether coordinated Chinese North Korean actions or uncoordinated, and there are distinct risks to both, what that might look like and the ways to think about that. Um, other questions? I might, I might ask my colleague saying if there's anything online. So there's a question online. Uh, given the rising importance of China and the U.S.-Korea alliance, how can South Korea guarantee that the immediate threat of North Korea remains a pivotal focus in the U.S.-Korea dialogue, U.S.-ROK dialogue? Can you read it just one more time for me? Uh, how can South Korea guarantee the immediate threat of North Korea remains a pivotal focus in the U.S. ROK dialogues? Yeah. Well, I, in some ways, I actually think that um, the South Koreans are not going to have to work too hard at that because the North Koreans are likely to um, be even more effective in ensuring that it doesn't drop too far as a priority. Um, but I think that the sensitivity that I was really trying to explore in my paper is in a way related to the question of within the context of the alliance that has long historically, historically been focused almost, well, really primarily on North Korea as the main threat, uh, is it possible to walk and chew gum at the same time? Can we focus on China? Uh, and North Korea, and if we start to do that, are there downside things that we need to worry about? And I do believe that one of the downsides that I tried to point to in my initial remarks uh, is the risk that as we focus on China policy that we somehow uh, subordinate North Korea uh, as part of China policy and therefore treat China as the only uh, actor and, and ignore North Korean agency. And so I think that that would be uh, a mistake. Um, but since we have the nuclear consultative group, uh, and since these statements are all focusing extensively on North Korea, uh, and, and certainly from the South Korean side, I mean, even participation in this trilateral is being justified by President Yoon first and foremost as a tool by which to deter North Korea. But that's how they're selling it, and that's how they're presenting it in terms of their own objective. Uh, and so um, I don't necessarily think that focusing, that broadening the aperture to include China has to mean that North Korea disappears. I don't think that it will disappear, and I am feeling more confident than I was in the initial phase of my inquiry uh, that... Um, 
that we'll be able to cooperate on China and continue to cooperate on North Korea uh, in an effective manner. Yes, right here. Hi, I'm Kathy from Project 2049. After, uh, like, I want to shift focus to North Korea. Like, uh, uh, how Kim Jong going to think, like, perceive about the Camp David summit? How much uh, deterrence effect will be felt, like, in Kim Jong Un's mind? And what is his uh, choices to make? One, I think, is more allies, China and Russia, and one is more double, you know, super supercharged about his new. And also, maybe it's an option about drive a wage between Japan and South Korea because we see some progress about Kishida and uh, North Korea these days, a little bit progress these days. So what is Kim Jong-un perceived about this Camp David summit and what is his choice after this summit? Well, I don't think that the North Koreans are going to be pleased uh, and I would expect to hear some vocal criticism. Uh, over the course of the next uh, few days. Uh, I think what is more interesting and a little bit complicated is that this trilateral summit is also coinciding with the beginning of the Ochi Freedom Shield exercise uh, in South Korea. Uh, and North Korea also, I think, objects to the um, uh, return of these exercises uh, and building them up into uh, more active exercises. And so there's actually two targets for North Korean rhetoric. The uh, more interesting question is, will it also be accompanied by some kind of symbolic representation of um, protest, uh, some kind of test, uh, and what type of test might North Korea uh, engage in uh, in this context? And I don't, I, I don't want to make a prediction about exactly how much or what North Korea is going to do. Uh, but I think that uh, the past records suggest that all of the things that I've talked about, you know, are probably uh, part of the repertoire in terms of North Korean response. Um, and, you know, really, as you mentioned, and as we've mentioned previously, you know, I think the really new thing that is most interesting uh, was the trilateral meeting in which Kim Jong-un hosted a Chinese uh, representative and the Russian defense minister, you know, really the first evidence of post-pandemic person-to-person -person diplomacy uh, that we've seen, um, you know, at that level, uh, you know, suggesting that uh, North Korea is taking on board, you know, what is happening uh, in this trilateral. But, you know, the other aspect of that is really and I think this is really complicated. How do we view the relative uh, roles of Russia and China in the context of that trilateral? Um, the really interesting new development is the apparent revival of the Russia-North Korean military relationship uh, and the possibility of various types of exchanges going on in, that con in the context of that relationship. But at the same time, historically, you know, the China-North Korea economic relationship has been so much more dominant. Uh, as a primary source of influence. Uh, and so, I don't know, the Russian, the North Koreans have tried on previous occasions to actually jumpstart the relationship with Russia as a way to counteract some of their overdependence on China. Um, I think it's still too early to say whether they can really succeed. I'm a little bit skeptical about their ability to succeed on that front. Given the time, I, I think I might try to gather uh, two questions. I see there's one in the second row here. Uh, also, Andre back there in the first row here. Maybe we can we can try to gather those three, and that will be our last batch, and it will be rapid fire for you, Scott. Maybe Yodim, could you start here? It's Kevin. I was wondering, is there a desire for reunification in North and South Korea like there is in Ireland? And wouldn't um, nationalism be a better tool for China? They they don't really need a buffer. Right. Your name, there's two of them. 
think only in your last answer, the word pandemic popped up. And I was wondering if you could address how the two major events of, of this decade so far, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, may have sh- shaped the worldview of particularly North Korea, but perhaps uh, this trilateral altogether. And I'll, I'll just pass the mic forward here to this gentleman. Uh, hi, uh, my name is In Wan Ho. Uh, amongst the South Korean uh, intellectuals and uh, historians uh, uh, talking about uh, Chinese history, every 70 or 80 years, China unifies and break up, unifies and break up. It's a typical pattern of uh, Chinese history in the back. Uh, now it's well over 70 years since Mao unified China back in 1949. Uh, it's a time to break up, according to the uh, period. Uh, but the, there are, we can see some uh, uh, symptoms. That is, Chinese economy is so poor that they may collapse uh, any time. Many uh, economists are uh, talking about it. And also, the uh, 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 power of Xi Jinping is in, is in trouble. It uh, seems very weak. It's getting worse. Uh, I wonder how Western scholars are looking into such a trend. Okay, three hard questions. Three hard questions of three minutes. Um, Right at this moment, I'm not terribly, uh, I I, I don't really see either uh, the North Korean or the South Korean governments showing that much interest in unification. In fact, in South Korea, it appears that the Ministry of Unification has been a target of, uh, I guess, uh, re, uh, reorganization. Uh, and on the public opinion front, it seems like there's also a lot of uh, caveats and cautions uh, as related to reunification. Having said that, we're in uh, an environment, international affairs environment of disruption, which leads me to the second question. And, you know, COVID and the Russian invasion of Ukraine are significant disruptions uh, that, in, in my view, on COVID, North Korea has used pretty effectively domestically to distract from the Hanoi failure and to kind of reset. Um, and then also, uh, I think it's really hard. I don't want to speculate about North Korean lessons from the invasion of Ukraine. I think so far it's been uh, a moment of tactical opportunity. Uh, And um, we do spend some time, I think, being concerned about lessons that North Korea might take in terms of the um, uh, challenge to existing international borders, things like that. Um, But at this point, I think that maybe we can just say that uh, it's also been an opportunity potentially for some kind of economic gain. Uh, And then, um, I'm sorry, the last, uh, the cyclical view of history and um, American views of China, well, I really better defer to my China specialist colleagues. You can read their opinions at CFR.org. And I would say that, You know, obviously, uh, the issue of how China is developing has been a major shaping uh, factor that is clearly affecting foreign policy in the region. And that was actually the broad backdrop uh, and uh, it's kind of starting point uh, for the paper that I wrote. Uh, And I think also for the volume that you all are uh, assembling. So... I think maybe what I should say is if you really want to explore the issue more, you better read uh, the volumes that Clint uh, has assembled. That was that was perfect. Uh, a final plug of uh, Council on Foreign Relations and KEI's own work. Um, an hour, of course, is never sufficient to discuss such complex issues, but thank you for joining us, Scott, to do so. Um, I will just, in closing, reiterate that we will, KEI, that is, will have an event, a sort of post-op event on tomorrow's trilateral summit on Monday afternoon, starting at uh, 2 p.m. And we will also have an event that I alluded to before on Australia-South Korea relations in the Indo-Pacific, featuring a paper that will also be in the volume Scott's paper will be in, and that will be on 
August 30th. So stay tuned for both of those. And thank you very much for joining us here on YouTube and of course on C-SPAN as well. Thank you for listening. For more Korea content, keep an eye on our podcast feed.